Et bienvenue. Hello there and welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode 15, Modern Art. We've met quite a lot of art already in various episodes. You might remember the Impressionist episode, we went to, I think it was three different museums, including that all-time big hitter, the Musée d'Orsay. In the episode on Saint-Germain, we went to the Rodin Museum and the Delacroix Museum. And then, of course, the Louvre had an episode all to itself last week. So this is my chance to address the gaps that there still are and most of the big hitters which are missing so far really would go under the general title of modern art so that seemed to be the way to go for this episode. But before I get started on the various museums I want to visit I'm going to read you some extracts from something called the Paris Art Year, an online diary that I came across which lists art happenings all over Paris throughout a year. It's actually based on the current year But since most of the things are annual or biannual events, it seems a nice general introduction to the idea of how very seriously the city of Paris takes art. And it kicks off in January with something called Art 3F, billed as an international contemporary art fair, which in its own words seeks to shift the boundaries of contemporary art and make it more accessible to the public. In February, the first of the big events at the Grand Palais. The Grand Palais is an exhibition centre which hosts a variety of things, but several big art shows through the year. And this particular one in February is called Art Capital, and they invite established and emerging artists of all nationalities to come and present their work. All art trends represented, two and a half thousand artists expected. And also in February, there's something called Satellite, or perhaps Satellite in French, an exhibition at the Jeux de Paume. March seems to be all about drawing, There's something called the Salon du Dessin and something else called Drawing Now, Art Fair Paris. Both of those are part of a week-long festival called Drawing Week. In April, there's the Paris Art Fair, also at the Grand Palais. 140 galleries represented there from 20 different countries for a four-day-long extravaganza. And also in April, there'll be something at the Jardin des Tuileries, so the Tuileries Gardens, called Paris Art and Design. In May, back to the Grand Palais again for a biennial event called Révélation, or Revelations in English, a gathering of 400 or so craftsmen, artists, designers and representatives from art galleries. In May, one of the big nights for the public, La Nuit Blanche, under the general title of European Museum Night, the night when many museums and cultural spaces in Paris and all around Paris stay open all night and there's a special programme of performances and installations to go with it. That event is staged in museums and galleries in lots of other cities throughout Europe. Summer goes a bit quiet, I think that's more the season for Paris-Plage when they turn Paris into a beach along the Seine, or indeed leave the city and go somewhere else on holiday, but in September it all starts up again. The European Heritage Days is a period of time when lots of cultural sites that are normally closed to the public open up so that you can get in and have a look behind the scenes. It's also Paris Design Week in September. Designers come from all over the world to show what they've been thinking about recently. And in October, another Nuit Blanche, another stay up all night and go and look at displays of contemporary art in places like churches, along the banks of the Seine sometimes, and certainly in museums as well. There's a Contemporary Art Week in October, also hosted at the Grand Palais. 70,000 visitors expected to that to mingle with gallery owners, French and international art collectors, artists, all sorts of people. And there'll be special exhibitions of lots of other Paris art galleries as well. 
and also something called the Outsider Art Fair, lots of urban art on display. Paris Photo, or possibly Paris Photo if they've gone international, takes place in November, a week to enjoy international fine art photography. 60,000 visitors expected to that at the Grand Palais, and then the year rounds off in December with something called Soon Paris. That's every two years, takes place at the Bastille Design Centre, and it features lots and lots and lots more original artworks. So really, whatever week you're coming to Paris, you should be able to find something. If you want to go for what museums are there as an angle, let's start with a couple of the really big hitters in the modern museum category. Two places with confusingly similar titles. One is the National Museum of Modern Art, which is at the Pompidou Centre, and the other one is the City of Paris Museum of Modern Art over in the direction of the Eiffel Tower. So let's take them singly and start with that iconic building dreamt up by one President Georges Pompidou. His vision was to create a multidisciplinary centre which he thought should be, quote, devoted to public reading, art and contemporary creation. This was in the early 1970s, just after May 68, of course, when there had been all that student-led unrest about access to culture and access to higher education. He wanted to play his part in tearing some of the metaphorical barriers down. This is how he put it. I am passionate about the idea of Paris having a cultural centre that would serve as a museum and a centre of creation, in which the visual arts go hand in hand with music, film, literature and audiovisual research. Since we already have the Louvre, the museum will naturally be one of modern art. The library will attract thousands of readers who will in turn be in touch with the arts. And actually, he summed it up a second time in a much pithier quotation, which read, I love art, I love Paris, I love France. I think we can all identify with that. Anyway, a competition was set up. Architects were invited to submit plans. No fewer than 687 teams of architects did so. And eventually, in 1970, winners were chosen, one Renzo Piano and Richard Rogers, working together, a team. Their design was going to transform this rather small, dark, grubby area of Leal, which had been filled since the Middle Ages with shops and brothels and pubs, gradually fallen into disuse, become a bit of a wasteland stroke car park, and a prime contender for an area which could be transformed by the creation of something new and wonderful. There was to be a building and a grand piazza, which was an integral part of the project, so there'd be plenty of space for strolling about, that French habit of la flânerie, meeting people, watching artists, perhaps a fire-eater or a clown or a musician, and generally enliven the area, rehabilitate it. And the building really was quite something. It's recognised even today all over the world for its inside-out approach, all the escalators on the outside, enormous coloured tubing, a building turned inside-out, if you like. Originally it was all going to be white and glass, but President Pompidou himself requested that the pipe should be coloured, as that would have more impact. And sure enough, there they all are. The blue pipes carry air, the green ones water, electricity runs through the yellow pipes, and red is the colour for the pipes which the public use to navigate their way around the building, up and down those exterior escalators, which are known as the caterpillar. People were pretty stunned. It wasn't long until the French were calling it Notre Dame of the Pipes, or the refinery. The central theme was really transparency. Lots of glass, tubes on the outside, 
The piazza sloping down into the building so that the line between inside and outside would be blurred, aiming, as the architect said, to create a sense of continuity between the two. Definitely a building that made a statement and had everybody talking about it. Many people liked it. It was new, it was startling, it was different. It put this area of Paris on the map. But I think it's probably the function of modern art to cause debate and invite detractors to tell everybody exactly why they don't like it. And perhaps one of the most eloquent of these was the writer Julian Green, who penned his thoughts as follows. And what shall I say of the entrails that the Beaubourg Palace exhibits with the idiotic satisfaction of a toddler bearing its stomach? He did go on to admit that there were some good points about it. Quote, you do, from the third floor, have a marvellous view of Paris, but first you must pass through the middle of those monstrous sky-blue tubes and all the rest of the pipeworks wound around the exterior. So he was just one among many critics who thought that this oil refinery, as they called it, destroyed the cachet of the historic district of the Marais. As for the values behind the project, I saw those summarised in the guidebook in French as, quote, L'art doit discuter. Art should discuss. Doit contester. Should contest. Doit protester. Should protest. And I also read the sentence, quote, no culture can exist without questioning preconceived ideas. And this building certainly did that, shook up the architectural establishment, was seen as a new approach both in architecture and in the idea of what a museum should be. So what was actually inside it? Well, one of the main things is the BPI, Bibliothèque Publique d'Information, a huge information library, no fee, accessible to everybody, open plan, just there for anyone who wants to look anything up. There are more private libraries too. There's a research library. There's a Bibliothèque Kandinsky, which houses books to do with all the art exhibitions that have been held at the centre, including the personal library collection of the artist Kandinsky himself. There's a Galerie de Photographie in the basement, which holds several exhibitions a year. There's a gallery for children, performing arts and cinema centre. Underneath the fountain in the square, there's a huge music research centre. You can't really see it because it's practically all underground, but down there is broadcast space for musicians and composers, a concert hall, workshops, a place to stage collaborative works, be they dance or film or video or sound installations. And all along, an emphasis on participation. Richard Rogers himself, one of the architects, conceived it as, quote, a building that would not be a monument, but a celebration, an oversized toy. And so the emphasis on events which celebrate art. The public are invited to come and take part. It's not by them for us. It's for everybody. And probably the most visited part of the building, Levels Floor and Five, the National Museum of Modern Art. Europe's largest collection of modern and contemporary art. A collection which is displayed chronologically from the whole of the 20th century and into our century. The name given to perhaps what was the first new artistic movement at the beginning of the 20th century was Les Fauvistes. This word came out of an exhibition staged in 1905 at which painters like Matisse and some of his contemporaries displayed their works. Vivid brushstrokes, bright colours caused such a stir that one of the critics wrote about them that it was like looking at the work of, quote, une cage aux fauves, that meaning a cage of wild animals. Just as the critic who used the word impression rather sniffily in the 19th century, gave that movement its name, so this movement became the Fauviste. 
So it starts with the work of the Fauvists and the Cubists, think Picasso. Dadaism is there, think Marcel Duchamp. Abstract art, people like Kandinsky. Surrealist works like the Spanish artist Miro. Expressionism, Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko. And then moving on to what they call the contemporary artists, things from 1960 or so onwards. So you can see Andy Warhol, you can see Anish Kapoor and current day works as well. If you feel overwhelmed, a good start would be to go onto the website and look at the details of something called Pompidou VIP. The VIP standing for Very Important Pieces, which is 20 pieces of art that you can have a look at. You can download a map to see where they all are in the gallery and there are podcasts describing them. So if you're not sure where to start, you just want to know a few of the things that are there, that might be the way to go. So I picked out a few to just mention quickly. One of the early ones in the 20 is something called Fontaine, Fountain, dating from 1917 by Marcel Duchamp, when he, wait for it, bought a urinal, signed it, called it La Fontaine, and sent it to a New York art gallery, who actually said, no thank you, they didn't want it. Or as the exhibition notes put it, quote, the jury of artists was not yet prepared to admit this provocative artwork. But Duchamp persisted, and here it is today in the gallery. For him, it posed all sorts of questions like, what is the artist's role? What is a work of art? Does it have to be beautiful? Does it have to be unique? And really set the tone for a rethink. Other things in the 20 are a portrait of a journalist, Sylvie von Hardem, by the German artist Otto Dix. Dates from 1926, a rather masculine-looking woman in a checked suit, sitting daringly for the time, alone, in a public place, smoking. As the museum notes put it, quote, her ostensibly nonchalant stance is a statement of her emancipated intellectual role. Wind forward to the 1940s, there's a work by Pete Mondrian called New York City. Might be everything you think of when you think of modern art. It's just a grid, really, of lines, red, blue and yellow, which, for Mondrian, reflected the, quote, architectural gigantism, perpendicular urbanism and frantic traffic of New York. Juan Miro's triptych, blue one, blue two and blue three, can be seen. One of them has a bright blue background, a red wiggly line running horizontally and a collection of black splodges. Those are my words. But the guidebook tells us they are, quote, the product of a long maturation process in which the great Catalan artist returned to his meditations on space and the act of painting. He explained that these three masterpieces were the result of a very great internal tension in order to arrive at a desired sobriety. It's not all paintings by any means. There are installation pieces as well. There is, dating from 1972, a piece of work designed to decorate the antechamber of President Pompidou's apartments at the Elysee Palace. If you're thinking pomp and ceremony inside a palace, think again, because what it actually is, is a vast multicoloured piece, all sorts of colours and abstract compositions surround you as you'll make your way to the door that's going to lead into the President's apartment. Some 2,000 or so pieces from the permanent collection are on display at any one point, and there are also popular exhibitions held, which sometimes attract hundreds of thousands of visitors can be anything on the latest trends in installation or video work, work from artists in emerging countries, always something unusual and surprising. So that's the Pompidou Centre, and the other large museum of modern art is the City of Paris one, 
where entry is free. Also somewhere where you can see works from all the major artistic movements of the 20th century. Again, a permanent collection and some temporary exhibitions. 10,000 or so works altogether. Again, organised chronologically. The Fauvists, then the Cubists, etc. A bit more Paris-centric than the Pompidou Centre. Lots of the pictures actually have a Paris theme. But in addition to paintings, you will find Art Deco furniture, ceramics, sculpture, fashion, video, cinema, all sorts of different branches of art. And certainly some big hitters represented. There's Matisse, Modigliani, Picasso, Marc Chagall, and a host of others. And I'd like to focus for a moment just on two of the very definitely must-see works which are there. And the first one is a large work, two works in fact, called La Danse by Matisse. So Matisse was commissioned in 1930 by an American millionaire to design a mural for his foundation and give an absolute carte blanche to do whatever he liked. Dance was a topic he was very interested in, so he decided he would make that the theme of the work. And so he set to work on a project which in fact in the end was going to take him three whole years. The first huge work that he produced, he ended up entitling La Danse Inachevée, the uncompleted dance, because he wasn't very happy with it. So he started again. A second equally large canvas, on which he was going to arrange cut-out bits of paper, different colours, so that he could move the figures round until he was happy with the composition. Finally, he did like it, but oh dear, irony, the finished work did not fit into the building for which it had been designed. Hence a third version, which he did finish, and which was installed where it was meant to be, in 1933. The original painting, the one with incomplete in the title, disappeared, but was found 60 years later, and happily now, both the final version and the original one are displayed here in the Modern Art Museum and have become one of the museum's biggest draws. The other large-scale work that people make a point of not missing is something called La Fée Electricité, the spirit of electricity, if you like, designed by Raoul Dufy in 1937. This too was a commission. An electricity company wanted something to represent electricity at an international exhibition being held in Paris. A mural designed for a pavilion to be set up on the Champ de Mars, just in front of the Eiffel Tower, entitled Pavillon de la Lumière et de l'Électricité, the Pavilion of Light and Electricity. And the idea was that something should be designed which would tell the story of electricity. And this Dufy duly did, a massive scale, 600 metres square in total, 250 large panels, which tell the history of electricity from its discovery right through to its modern applications, or at least applications that were modern in the 1930s. The lower half has portraits of over a hundred scientists and inventors who all were connected with electricity. But there's more than that. There's a blend of mythology in there as well. So you've got Olympian gods, you've got Zeus and his thunderbolt. There's Iris, messenger of the gods, flying in a beam of light over all the capitals of the world. It's a massive, eye-catching, luminous piece of work. All the colours, reds, blues, yellows, greens, merge together. And they're done, in fact, by a special paint which the artist had prepared specially by a chemist, so that it would be transparent and look like watercolour, and be a celebration of light in its own right. Another museum with a big visitor toll is the Musée Picasso, set up in the 1970s, about a year before the artist died, when he offered to leave many of his works to the French nation in lieu of the tax that he owed. But this was duly decided, 
A building was bought, the lovely 17th century Hôtel Salé in the Marais district, which had been a private mansion, but was taken over for use as a museum. Over 5,000 pieces of his work are here. A real introduction to his work, because there's completed work, paintings, sculptures, engravings. But there's also a lot of material, sketches, drafts, notebooks, etchings of various stages, which show how he worked and what he was thinking. So if that's what interests you, it really is a museum where you'll find you can learn a lot. Some of the famous works there are one of his self-portraits, produced during his blue period, some of his large cubist paintings, Man with a Guitar, for example, and Man with Mandolin, piece of work which is billed as the first modern art collage called Still Life with Chair Caning, and some of his dark war paintings done during the Spanish Civil War. Sombre colours, distorted people. So there's a chronological approach, there's an insight into how he worked, and there are themed rooms as well, so you get a whole room of self-portraits, or of bullfighting, or portraits of women, for example. Showing how his approach to those various subjects altered over the years, and how the various techniques and periods that he went through can be seen in these pictures. Another way to have a look at the development of his art. I think the three museums mentioned so far are probably the three big hitters when it comes to modern art in Paris, but that doesn't mean there aren't other places where you can see more, and I've picked out just four to mention briefly. If you go up to the area in the northwest of the city, La Défense, you will find a Musée à ciel ouvert, an open-air museum, actually a collection of statues dotted around the area which today is the business and shopping area of the city. There are about 60 monuments there, with titles like The Red Spider and The Thumb, so practically anything goes. And there are works by some well-known artists dotted among them, Miro, for example. A museum, as it said in the guidebook I read, which is open 24-7. The work of art, in inverted commas, that people most associate with La Défense is, of course, the Grande Arche itself, the magnificent huge arch built in 1989, for the 200 years anniversary of the revolution, an end piece to the Grand Axe that winds its way through Paris, starting at the Louvre, up the Champs-Élysées, past the Arc de Triomphe, and then out all the way to La Défense to the Grand Arche, which mirrors the Arc de Triomphe. It's an absolutely massive, over 100 metres high, hollow marble cube. You could fit Notre Dame inside it, and it can be seen from all over Paris. You can take the lift up to the top, if you like, a lift which goes up the outside of the building, in order to see views of Paris, look back at the Arc de Triomphe, etc. But also, at the top there, you will find a huge display area, where there often is a contemporary photographic or art exhibition. And then we can't leave La Défense without mentioning what, to Parisians, is perhaps the other very well-known statue there, a bronze sculpture done in the 1880s, actually called La Défense de Paris, the Defence of Paris, and showing a soldier defending a young woman who represents Paris. The whole thing made to commemorate the German siege of Paris in 1870 and the bravery of all those who tried to defend the city. And it's from this statue, La Défense, that the area itself gets its name. So on first view it looks a little bit like a concrete jungle, but actually there is quite a lot of art dotted about. Somewhere very new, the Louis Vuitton Foundation, which opened in 2014. 4,000 square metres of exhibition space, again for things from the 20th and 21st centuries, permanent collection and temporary exhibitions. 
another gallery where the building itself is as much a thing to look at as anything that's inside. A massive glass cloud of an institution. A much older building, but one which also has a focus on modern art today, is the Monet de Paris. So, originally the Stock Exchange, founded as early as the 9th century, and which moved into a building on the Quai de Conti, along the Seine, on the left bank, in 1775, and always had a dual role, because as well as being the place where coins were minted, it was also somewhere where artists' workshops were installed. The serious business of making money, literally minting coins, has been moved elsewhere, but after a renovation project, it now has retained its role as somewhere to see art, and offers temporary exhibitions of contemporary art, as well as a museum of coins. Visitor numbers are surely increased by the fact that there's a Michelin-starred chef cooking there in the restaurant, and that you can get from the building the most fantastic views over the Seine, looking across to the Louvre. And finally, not art but photography, there is the big photography museum, La Maison Européenne de la Photographie, again in the Marais district, a collection of over 20,000 works of photography, temporary exhibitions as well, something on portraiture perhaps, on optical illusions. There was a major exhibition quite recently on a season at a French fashion house and how that was covered by the camera. There was another one on the work of the architectural photographer Kayo Reisewitz. So really all sorts of different things and not just a museum but also a library, video viewing facility, a place that runs workshops and events throughout the year. So if it's photography that's your thing, that's the place to look out for. Well, I don't know how many episodes we'd run to if we really covered everything but everything in the art world in Paris, but I'm proposing to leave it there now. We've been on a quick visit to all the big hitters, whether in this episode or in previous ones, given a brief mention to a range of smaller places that you might want to visit, and I hope at least left the impression that Paris really is a city where art is taken very seriously, and which sets out to offer really something for everybody in that field. So, a brief look ahead to next week, when I'm going to move on to that famous French and Parisian activity, Le Shopping. Again, not so much where to start, but where to stop. But I'm going to keep things under control by devoting just the one episode to a few aspects of the idea of shopping in Paris. A look at the markets, a look at some of the massive department stores, a visit to some of those passages, those covered little roads, which offer an endless variety of quirky little shops. And just a few pointers, really, to the idea that if you go to Paris with an open mind and just wander about, there will be absolutely no shortage of wonderful shops, big and small, to entertain you. So I hope very much that you'll be able to join me for that next week. And for the meanwhile, I'm going to sign off, as usual, by thanking you for listening. Merci. Looking forward to next week, la semaine prochaine, and saying goodbye. Au revoir. <laughs>